Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm the host of today's episode. And today I'm going to be speaking with Rob Kramer, who is a, a guide dog mobility instructor with the CNIB in Canada. Rob, thanks for joining me on the show today. No problem. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing okay. So you're I shouldn't say I'm doing okay. I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> okay. Okay just sounds so so bland. I know I'm doing well. Looking forward to the conversation today. I have a lot of questions about uh guide dogs in general. Um and the you know people dog dynamics. So we'll dive into those uh, in the next 20, 30 minutes. So I was hoping we can start off a little bit with your your journey or your background. Like what what inspired you or you know nudged you along the path of becoming a guide dog trainer and um, to maybe talk a little bit about what that career path has looked like over, over the last several years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, the journey actually started, uh, I was probably around 10 years old. Um, my mom actually has RP. Um, so she um, was partially sighted growing up and she's, um, she's now totally blind. Um, but around 10 years old, she decided to get um, her first guide dog. So I remember we were allowed to visit on Sundays um, and we went and visited her at the guide dog training facility. And I remember meeting one of the trainers and it, it sort of stuck with me. I thought, now that's a great job. You know, I thought what he does on a day-to-day basis, the benefit he's giving to people, which I could clearly see with my mom, um, it just, it sort of stuck with me. Um, and then I sort of deviated from that path for a little bit, but I, I had an opportunity in my early 20s. Um, I started deciding what to do, what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and I was living in Australia. Um, I'd moved there because my, my wife is uh, Australian. So I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna revisit that dream. Um, so I called up the local guide dog school in Queensland and I asked them, I said, look, this is my dream. How can I achieve it? Um, they, they told me, they said, look, you know, it's a really hard career path. It's, there's minimal positions, but if you want to do it, they suggested I take a college course on basic animal husbandry um, and basic care and training of animals. So I took the course and I kept harassing the guide dog school until I got a position working in the kennels as a kennel attendant. So that entailed looking after the dogs, grooming them, doing health checks, cleaning up the kennels. Um, But I loved every minute of it. And I was lucky enough after about eight months working in the kennels, a apprenticeship position uh, became available as a guide dog trainer. So a guide dog trainer is a little bit different than my current position as a guide dog mobility instructor. As a trainer, you, you work exclusively with the dogs. So you train them to a standard where they're able to work safely and then they were handed off to guide dog mobility instructors. Um, that I, I did that job for several years, but It was always kind of a dream to become a guide dog mobility instructor. Um, At the time, I wasn't able to to follow that path because um, you actually required a master's to do it in Australia at the time. Um, So I I kept working as a guide dog trainer for um, probably about six years. And then they they changed the requirements and, um, and I was able to start the apprenticeship as a guide dog mobility instructor, which uh, involved teaching the guide dog handlers how to use the guide dogs. Um, so I started doing that. 
Um, finished off the apprenticeship uh, in Canada, actually. Um, so I was partway through it when I saw that CNIB um, was starting a guide dog program. And I thought it was quite an exciting opportunity and quite a natural fit for me. Because I remember as a kid volunteering for the CNIB. Um, so I saw it and I thought, you know what, I think that might, might be meant to be for me. Um, it's, it's very rare in the industry to get to be a part of a guide dog school in its, in its infancy. So uh, I made the move over in 2018, finished my guide dog mobility instructor apprenticeship, um, and I've been working here with CNIB guide dogs ever since. Wow. Okay. So no, that's interesting background. It's brought up a couple of things here. So the, uh, the apprenticeship program, when you're doing it in Australia and in Canada, is this like an internationally recognized accreditation? Yes, it is. It's recognized by the International Guide Dog Federation. Okay, fair enough. So it's pretty standardized. The uh, another thing that just came to mind when you were when you were just talking about um, when you were about ten years old. I, I guess I, I misheard or uh, misinterpreted uh, for a moment there, but it brought up a question. Um, you said when you were approximately ten years old, your mother got her first guide dog, correct? Yeah. Okay, so my, now the question that came out of that when I misheard it was, uh, is how old, I guess, do you have to be or is typically recommended before you can get a guide dog? Because I mean, there are children who have visual impairments as well. Um, so I'm just curious, what is the, if there's guidelines or standards around that? Yeah, every school is going to be different. And I would recommend to people to contact a variety of guide dog schools to see what their requirements are. Um, Generally, though, in the industry, um, 16 years old is, is sort of the, the most common age. Um, but there's always exceptions um, for people younger who have the maturity um, and are able to manage the responsibility of having a guide dog because it's, you know, it's a lot of work. And if you think about bringing a guide dog into high school and just dealing with the other students, trying to keep them from interfering with your dog and patting your dog when it's working. It's a lot to manage. So I've certainly met people who've had guide dogs at 14 and have done exceptionally well with them. Um, but generally people wait a little bit longer. Fair enough. Okay. So as a, a guide dog mobility instructor now, what does your life, <laughs> what does your job, what does your job look like? It's very vague. <laughs> your job, you know, uh, I, I understand. So you're working more with, I guess, the combination of the dog and the hand. So the handler is the technical term for the individual who uses the guide dog, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So, so what does the mobility instructor do or what do you do? Is it just training the handler how to interact with the dog or what is, what is the job involved? Um, so it changes from day to day. At, at times, um, I'll be more focused on training dogs. So I might have periods of time where I'm, I'm training a group of dogs for five months. Um, periodically through that time, though, I'm probably traveling to do some assessments with people who are applying for a guide dog. Um, I may also um, be going out and providing um, follow-up services to our clients or to our handlers that have guide dogs. Um, so I might be training dogs and mixing in a little bit of, of client work um, or at other times when I've finished with those group of dogs or someone else has trained a dog that's ready to go out with the handler, then I'll take that dog um, once they're matched to one of our handlers and I'll do a training program 
with either an individual handler or with a group of handlers. So generally it takes, if we do a group class, it's about two weeks in Ottawa, followed by approximately a week at home, teaching them how to work with the guide dog. Um, and that involves in harness and out of harness. Um, yeah, how to interact with the public with your guide dog, how to advocate for your access rights. So there, there's a lot to learn with that. Um, at the moment, we're, we're only doing one-on-one uh, -on -one training programs. Um, so we're going, we're traveling to wherever the handler lives and doing the programs from their home um, just because of COVID. So it's obviously not as efficient, um, but we're, we're still managing to get the dogs out there. So, so it's a good segue into my next question, which was related to COVID. Um, how else has the whole pandemic, you know, shutting things down uh, the border and then different things. How has that impacted your job or the CNIB's guide dog training program in general? It's had a massive impact on the entire industry. Um, a lot of handlers in Canada had previously gone to the States to get guide dogs. That's obviously not an option right now. So at CNIB, we've had a 375% increase, increase sorry, in interest in applications for a guide dog. So that's huge. <laughs> it's, it's also um, affected our pups because we get our puppies from a specialized um, service dog breeder in Australia. And we haven't been able to travel, get the pups to Canada um, since the pandemic started. Um, so one of the things we've, we've done is, is actually collaborated with other guide dog schools. Um, so one of those collaborations is actually um, having one of our uh, staff members go to Australia um, and work with our puppies over there, but they're actually in the homes of volunteers with Vision Australia seeing eye dogs. So they're gonna, our staff member is gonna support those puppy raisers and get those pups ready. So once flights open up, um, we're gonna bring those, those pups back so they can begin the formal part of their training. Um, so, that's really exciting. We were lucky enough that that staff members originally from Australia. So it actually worked out really well for us. And we're going to be able to keep up our supply of dogs. Uh, we also have a couple other really exciting collaborations, which I don't think anything like this has been done previously. Um, a couple of the guide dog schools in the United States have actually, um, they've got some, some guide dog handlers that are ready for training. They've got dogs for them, but they can't come across the border right now to train them. So CNIB is actually gonna provide the instructors, uh, the guide dog mobility instructors to run those training programs. Um, and then the, the schools from the US are gonna be providing us with some, some pups and some older dogs that'll be ready to be trained. So it's benefiting um, both, both organizations um, and it's meaning we're getting guide dogs in the hands of people who need them in Canada, which is, which is great. Um, so it's, COVID's created a lot of challenges, obviously, for us. But I'm really excited by the initiative and the creativity um, that guide dog schools have, have been, yeah, really working to come up with solutions that are outside the box. So it's, it's definitely a challenge. And like I said, there's a 375% increase in applications. So we're doing our best at CNIB to, to meet that demand. We're, we're hiring staff and we're developing 
um, our CNIB canine campus in Ottawa to allow for more dogs um, to, be, to be trained. So we're doing everything we can to meet that need, um, but it is, it is huge. Um, and it's obviously uh, costing more as well. So we've initiated an urgent expansion campaign. So we're hoping to raise funds to cover 150 qualified guide dogs. So up to this point, we've raised enough to cover 40 dogs. So that's amazing, but we're still working to reach that goal. Um, yeah. Fair. Okay. So definitely, definitely interesting. The, a couple of things. One of the, this. the first question I have is why a 375% increase in demand in such a short time? Is it just because the, the, it's a supply and demand issue or is there a greater need now for more dogs? Just can you there's comment more, on that? Yeah, there, there's more need in Canada because up until this point, a lot of guide dog handlers in Canada have gone to the States to get their guide dogs. So as soon as that, as soon as that was stopped, it meant people that were in need of a dog were having to rely on the schools in Canada. So it's, um, yeah, it's just, it just created a huge, a huge demand for dogs sourced in Canada and trained in Canada. So, okay. My next question is, and maybe, maybe there's an obvious answer to this, but why Australia, why us, why do we not, uh, I guess breed dogs for um, to become guide dogs within Canada or do not do it on the scale that is necessary. Yeah. A lot of it's scale. Um, you know, it costs about $50,000 um, to train and provide for a guide dog over the course of its life. So um, the schools in the States are massive and they've been operating for a very long time. Um, so some of those schools put out about 300 dogs a year um, and the schools here in Canada just aren't at that scale at this point. Um, and the reason that we use a breeder from Australia is because as a new school, we don't have breeding lines. Um, so that's something we are looking to start very soon. We wanna get a breeding program. So we're breeding our own dogs here. Um, but the, the breeder that we use in Australia, she's got um, proven guide dog lines and service dog lines. So these are dogs with generations um, behind them of proven working lines, which is a big part of it. No, no. Okay. That's, that's fair. So I, I guess that kind of leads me into another topic here uh, and maybe we'll go on some tangents here, but when you're talking about um, having proven you know, service guide lines uh, or history there with certain, um, certain breeders, what's the process, I guess, for matching these dogs with handler because i'm assuming that there's going to be you know there's probably certain qualities that are absolutely necessary um for the dog to have i guess which is why you'd have certain um, breeding lines but i would think that for example someone who's an athlete and and is out on the go all the time versus somebody who may be a little bit slower moving who is older um, I'm thinking just the pace of the dog and maybe the temperament, um, are going to be different. And so how do you, how does that matching process work? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Sean. And it's, it's a really, really critical part of what we do, um, getting that match, right. So, so the way we operate, um, when someone sends in an application, um, we look at that application that talks about 
their lifestyle and you know sort of their height and there, there's some basic information there to go off. Um, we'll also get a recommendation from their orientation and mobility instructor letting us know that they have the required skills to orientate themselves in their environments. Um, but once they've sort of gone through that process, we'll actually send a staff member out to do an in-home interview and assessment. So that process we spend, it's about three hours, but what we're doing is really trying to get to know the person, get to know their lifestyle. Like you said, get to know their um, walking speed. So we'll actually do a walk with them. Um, if we can, we try and bring a dog with us on that assessment so we can actually see how they interact with the dog too. Um, but we're really working hard in that three hours to capture as much about that person as we can. And some of it, like I said, is the walking speed and what type of environments they're gonna be working in. You know, they might be working in big busy cities where there's a lot going on and a lot of noises that the dog would have to cope with. Um, but part of it as well is finding out what they like in a dog, you know, because a lot of the time they're going to be with the dog. It's going to be in a social environment. It's going to be in their home. So I could match a dog to someone and it could work perfectly for them and meet their needs from a mobility perspective. But if it's a dog that they don't enjoy being around in the house, that's going to affect that relationship. So I'm really trying to find the perfect dog for the person. It's it's a combination of an art and a science, and we really work hard to get it right. Um, so once we've, we've captured all that information, we do actually sit down and have meetings to decide the best dog for each person. And it, it can take a bit of time because getting that wrong can, can really be detrimental. You know, we, if we get the wrong dog for someone, they come in for training, they're taking time out of their lives, they come in and let's say the speed is wrong. You know, the dog is just not walking as fast as they want to walk. That's a team that hasn't worked out and that person's taking time out of their life. There's an emotional investment as well. So we really, really work hard to get that match right. No, I think that, okay. So it's going to bring, bring me to another question here. You're making my job so easy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I, I wanted to dive into the, you know, the, the dog being a, a guide versus a pet and that dynamic for people to navigate. So when matching people, you know, you're considering that, Hey, this dog can be a good guide because of whatever, if it's walking speed, a patient purpose, person's height, the temperament or whatever it may be. Um, but that dog also has to be, like you said, a, a pet for, for these people, because, you know, unless you're, you know, on the go 24 seven, then that dog is not always, uh, working right, the dog in, has downtime as a pet as well. Um, how do you know? Do you provide advice through a CNIB or just? Uh, I guess how do new handlers navigate that dynamic of okay, now the dog's working and now he's my or she is my friend and we're we're playing outside together. Yeah, they're supported with that process. Um, we teach them how to manage home behaviors as well as working behaviors. Um, and a lot of that is, um, it comes down to consistency, um, and managing sort of what the expectations of that handler has. So some people, um, may decide, you know, they don't want the dog playing in one room in their house. Maybe it's got really nice floors and they don't want them scratched and that's off limits. So we can teach them and we can support them in how to implement those, uh, those rules and guidelines for the dog. Um, 
and we we teach them as well like things that the dog needs uh for their own uh enrichment really and their own um you know the dogs work hard and they do need that downtime to relax um and just release some energy so we teach things like enrichment exercises for the dogs how you can play with your dog um, and that one thing I really like to do is combine play with training. So I make games that are fun for the dog, fun for the person, but they're also going to incorporate probably some obedience. So it just keeps up that relationship where, you know, the dog is responding to the handler. You're keeping those skills sharp, um, but they're also having a lot of fun doing it. I like how I try to raise my kids. <laughs> it's like, you know, well, the, the dynamic a little bit is there. You, you want the dog to be, to be obedient um when necessary but then to also have just that um you know playful interaction as well right so it's like my kids i want them to, i want them to, to listen when i need them to listen but i want to be able to you know go outside and and and, and do things with them and, and you know not just a you know a uh you know, boss employee type of relationship right yeah um, absolutely there's a lot of transfer there's, there's a lot of transfer between kids and dogs really um, I can definitely see that, that connection. The, uh, I, I know a separate question here. Are these guide dogs typically males or females or is it a mix? Uh, it's a mix. It's a mix. Okay. Okay. Um, no, I was just, I was just curious. Um, because it's not something I've ever seen discussed anywhere. So I didn't know yeah. if there was, if there was, you know, uh, any, any specific, you know, gender specific, um, differences. Now, do you, do you tend to match or is this again, a mix if you have a male handler or it doesn't really matter if they have a male, female dog or, or a female handler, or is it just kind of whatever they prefer? Um, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter. We'll, we'll match males and females. Um, we're, we're looking more at temperament and the dog's skills. Um, so yeah, there's not really any connection that way the only thing we may look at is size of the dog compared to size Fair, yeah. of the person. Um, some people do have a preference though like when i go out and interview someone they may say to me i want a female dog or i want a male dog so that's fine um we will put that down on the assessment and we'll consider that when matching but the only thing i will tell people when they say that is it may extend their waiting time because if i get let's say they they tell me that they will only have a female dog so I might have a male dog that matches to them perfectly, but because it's a male, it won't be considered. So they may get pushed down um, and have to wait a little bit longer. Uh, it's the same with color preference. You know, some people might have a preference for a yellow or a black dog, um, which is fine and understandable, but it, it can extend your waiting time. Yeah, which makes sense. The more specific your criteria, then yeah, it's the harder it is to make that match, I suppose. Um, okay, dog versus cane. You know, you mentioned earlier that when you're trying to match a dog with a handler, you want to know uh, that person's orientation skills already. So I'm assuming that a lot of the uh, handlers will go through some sort of orientation and mobility training ahead of time. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's... So when you're talking about dog versus cane, is there, what's the, di- I mean, what's the difference and what's better for who? I guess I mean, it's a very open question, but <laughs> it, you know, I mean, it's a, it's maybe I'm opening up a can of worms here, but just, uh, if you can just comment on that in general, yeah. a dog versus a cane as a, as a, a mobility, uh, vehicle, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, the first thing 
I'd say is I will never tell someone, you know, that that a guide dog is is better than a cane. Um, it, it's really down to individual preference because it's a very, very different style of mobility. Um, when you have a cane, you really have a connection with your environment, a tactile connection um, that can be helpful, right? Um, when, you're, when your cane um, hits, you know, let's say the end of a curb and you, you can feel where that curb is, you're not gonna have that with the dog, you know? Um, so it can be, it can be quite overwhelming for first time guide dog handlers when they feel they're just moving through space without actually having contact with it, if that makes sense. Um, a guide dog though can increase your efficiency of travel and for a lot of people because with a cane, uh, again, if we use an example where there's a car parked across the sidewalk, with a cane, you're gonna, you're gonna make contact with that car and then you're gonna have to find out how far it extends and how to get around it safely. With a guide dog, you may not even know that that car was there. It's just going to fluidly take you around the car and then take you back to the sidewalk, which can speed things up for a lot of people. Um, I've heard people describe it. They say that walking with a guide dog is a lot more like walking as a sighted person. Um, and some people say that it's less um, strenuous mentally, um, that you're not having to think as much. Saying that, there's a lot more to think about with a guide dog in terms of distractions, in terms of managing their behavior. You know, a, a cane doesn't get distracted. Uh, a cane doesn't have to be, um, you don't need to find a place for them to go toilet either. Um, so it's, it's a different lifestyle with the dog. It, it's, it's very much um, a 24 seven responsibility for you. You need to think about that dog's health. Um, so it's, yeah, it's different and it, it's really an individual choice. Um, a lot of people enjoy the confidence they get having a guide dog. Uh, a lot of people enjoy the fact that guide dogs can locate objectives for them so they can find things like doors, stairs, an empty seat, escalators. So these are things with a cane, you know, you can't tell your cane to find the door. So there's benefits uh, to both. Um, and it's that's why I do really like to bring a dog with me when I do an, uh, an assessment for someone wanting a guide dog, because I want them to experience that difference and decide whether it's right for them. Because for some people, they may, they may try it and then just go, okay, that's, that, that's not what I thought it was, you know, and, and that's okay. Um, it's, not, it's not the right mobility vehicle for, for everybody, um, but for people who like it, they generally love it. Um, once people are sort of hooked on guide dog mobility, it's, it's sometimes hard to, uh, get them to go back. I know, uh, personally, uh, my mom, when she's had gaps between guide dogs, it's been, uh, it's, it's definitely been a, a challenge for her. Um, and she just misses that guide dog mobility and the, the freedom that, that it provides for her. I can imagine that, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about how, walking with a dog, you, you know, you might not even know certain objects are there and maybe you didn't really care anyways, but because that dog is really you know, helping you navigate around your, your environment. Uh, it made me think about a former colleague I had, um, when I was doing research, um, many years ago and she had two sons who were, uh, completely blind. And I remember, you know, when she would go places, she'd be taking them by the hand and they, you know, not, not pulling them, but you kind of leading them everywhere they go. And they 
you can follow very effortlessly because you know they trust that their mother is leading them in the right direction. So I'm I'm wondering if there is any relationship between um, the desire to and, and the willingness to let go, so to speak, and, and trust in the dog. Um, if if there's a relationship between maybe the timing of when someone loses vision and that preference, or uh, like do you do you tend to see people who maybe lost vision younger um, as they become adults, they are more willing to, um, you know, use a dog or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they're more just adapted to using a cane because they can get a cane at a very young age. I don't know if there's any, any, any relationship you see there, if I'm just way off in left field with this. With no, this, it's a really interesting you know? question. Um, and it'd be something I'd like to see data on actually. Um, from personal experience, it's a bit of a, it's probably a bit varied. Uh, it depends. I don't know if I could draw any connections, um, but it is, it is something, you know, you mentioned about if someone's losing their vision and trying to find the right time to get a dog. And what that made me think about was how sometimes, you know, having some residual vision can actually make it harder to work with a guide dog. For some people, um, it can be a benefit, but it can also be a hindrance because having some vision allows you to potentially help the dog out a bit more and support them. You know, you might see that there's a dog coming towards you. You know, if you've got some central vision, you may see that there's a dog coming towards you and you can prepare your dog to manage that distraction better. But when you have vision, you have some vision there. It it can be harder um, to trust the dog. You know, you mentioned trust and that's a big part of the relationship. Um, so having, having a bit of vision, you, you tend to, some people can tend to not want to follow the dog because they, they're following their line of travel that they think they should be going. And the dog might be trying to take them around something that's out of their field of vision. Um, but because they, they've still got some vision, they're not hundred percent trusting the dog, which can really make, can really hinder the, um, the, the mobility and, and the safety of that guide dog team. Um, so sometimes when there's people like that, I'll, I'll even use a blindfold in, in training. Um, I actually had a gentleman I was working with uh, last year and he, he had a little bit of vision and he was just, yeah, having that moment where it was hard for him to trust the dog completely. And he kind of had his idea of where he should be going. So around the fourth day of training, I, I put him into a blindfold. <laughs> when we finished that walk, he turned around. He's like, why didn't you do this day one? it just made it that much easier for him. Um, So, you know, and, uh, but for some people, you know, that might be very intimidating to go under blindfold. So it's not a technique that we're going to use with everyone or make people do, you know, I had a discussion with the gentleman and agreed we would try it. And in that instance, it it really helped. And then once he was able to do it with the blindfold on, he saw what he needed to do and how he could use his vision to support the dog without interfering with the dog. That makes sense. It's it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting to think, okay, being totally blind in that scenario actually makes it easier to, or at least, you know, to develop that, develop that mobility training with a dog, I guess. Right. Or how having some vision could be a hindrance. Um, It's, you know, uh, I I live that on the daily as well as many other people where you have a little bit of residual vision, which, you know, how long will hold on, who knows. Um, and then you, you try to still do things without, you know, fully embracing like, okay, yeah, maybe I should be using voiceover on my phone at this point, 
He's like, well, no, if I zoom in a lot, I can read three letters at a time. And it's like, okay, at some point, whereas if you're totally blind, you're just like, okay, let's, this is my reality. Let's just, you know, make the jump, right? Uh, it can be simpler, I think. Um, I mean, it's different and everyone's experience is different. So I don't like to comment too much, um, but it, it can be simpler. You know, um, uh, personally, I, I find it probably a little bit easier to work with people who have less vision because of those reasons. Um, but saying that having some vision can be really helpful. It's, it's just learning, learning how to use the vision you have. Right. Um, and it's also thinking about like, what's the eye condition? Is it progressive? Is it likely to change? Um, because that may change how, how you work with the dog as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the experience you've had in Canada and in Australia um, everywhere in between, I'm sure that's served up a few, uh, more than a few stories. Um, and I'm wondering if you want to, without me queuing up anything specific, if you have any stories that you think the audience would, uh, would either benefit from hearing or, or just simply enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a couple one that stands out to me. That was just something I, I really enjoyed. Um, I, I was working with a guide dog handler um, in Canada couple of years ago now um and they they were experienced dog handlers so and we had a nice dog for them so just flew through the training program and we had some some time left before i was supposed to fly back um to ottawa so we decided um one of her big dreams was to do the grouse grind for anyone who's familiar it's they call it Nature's Stairmaster. It's in Vancouver. It's about three kilometers straight up a mountain. I think it's 2,800 steps. Um, so this was a big dream um, for this young lady to, to get up that mountain. So thought we had the time and we had the dog. This dog was endless energy. <laughs> she, she was just full of energy. So we actually um, did the grouse grind together with her guide dog. Um, part of that and the way that that track is um, some of it's stairs but a lot of it's like stairs made out of rocks uh, tree roots um, it's it's a whole variety um, of surfaces and it's it's quite a challenge to do and this person was totally blind um, and we thought you know what let's let's do it together so some of that she was able to use with her guide dog, actually navigating the trail and indicating steps and avoiding any surface changes. Uh, part of it was probably a little too dangerous to do that way, um, especially as they were a new guide dog team. So I did sighted guide um, and we came up with a, a system so I could describe the steps because they're all different sizes. Some were small, some were medium, some were rock. So we came up with a one, two, three system. Cause I said, look, I might be out of breath. I'm not going to be able to describe everything in detail. So <laughs> we just said like a one is a little step, a two is medium and a three is a big, big one. You got to lift your leg up for it. So I would say, you know, Rocky three or, you know, log two. Um, but we made it up, um, which was, it's one of the, the things I'm most proud of in my career because I'm really passionate about empowering people to do you know, to follow their dreams and let's make it work. Um, so this was something like we were able to do with the dog. Um, and it, you know, it's not your standard mobility, but it was a big achievement. Um, and I think it helped help that relationship between the two of them. You know, they did that together. And if they can do that, 
there's nothing they can't do, you know. Um, and, and I always told people that's where I got my master class in, in sighted guide because I think for me, if I can do that, everything else should be fairly straightforward. Um, <clears throat> so that was, uh, yeah, it, it's not related to guide work entirely, but um, it was something, and it sort of shows the other side, you know, a guide dog can guide you, um, but they're also there as your, as your buddy, you know as a companion so that was a really special one for me um and i guess another story that comes to mind um is actually a gentleman i worked with who was very much not a dog person you know and he told me when i when i interviewed him he just said look I'm, i've never had dogs i'm not really into dogs i like cats but i think a guy's dog could <laughs> really could really benefit my mobility so he was interested just in the mobility you know using the dog as a mobility device but he was a little bit unsure about what that would mean living with one um and what was really great is the cnib um actually i went after i interviewed him i went and i talked to my manager and i said look like you know here's a guy i think a dog could really help him he's got the mobility skills however i'm not sure how he's going to go living with a dog um so what we were actually able to do, I was approved to go and bring a dog, this gentleman, and let him stay overnight. I happened to be in the area anyways. So we had a dog stay overnight just so we could get a feel, you know, for what, what it's like living with the dog, cleaning up after them, feeding them, all those things. Because that would have been, you know, the stumbling block for him during class training. Um, and, you know, he, <laughs> I showed up the next morning. It was I wasn't sure the whole night I was staying, you know, about two minutes away. I said, look, call me if there's any problems, but, but he made it through the night and he said, you know what, I think this is something I could do. Um, and it was really nice because the dog that I placed with him overnight is actually the dog that he ended up with. Um, and he's, he's now, he'll still tell you he's not a dog person, but I won't say the name of his dog. We've just got confidentiality, but he says, you know, it's he's he's a I'll use Fido he's a Fido person now you know he, he loves his dog um and and to be honest they're one of my best teams I went out to watch them recently and they've been out working about a year and their mobility is flawless it's they work incredibly together the relationship is is so nice between the two of them um so that's that was something I really thought was amazing just to see the transformation and to see now and seeing him play with the dog and enjoy the dog and um and get the benefits of the mobility as well he went into it thinking oh it'll just be about the mobility but he's come away loving you know he's a he's a fido person now and he, and he loves that dog and he's one of my best teams so see someone go from a place where they weren't comfortable with dogs to being you know one of the best teams you know that i that i work with is um yeah something i'm really proud of and really proud of him and uh yeah sort of a nice one for me well if you can convert oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, someone from a cat lover to a dog lover i mean that's <laughs> that's 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 great already right so <laughs> he was a pretty special dog too. he's a really nice dog and we did, we did match with that in consideration you know that dog was almost more more like a cat but uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had some mannerisms but we did, did like, at, you know, attitude or what? I did like a lot of cats have yeah, attitude, right? <laughs> yeah, well, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. But he loves his attention, and he'd rub up against you, um, <laughs> and he's just sort of understated in the home, you know. Like if I had a matched, you know, a, 
if I'd have matched the dog that went off the grass grind with that gentleman, it never would have worked. You know, so this was a more mature dog. Like the, the dog that went off the grass grind, I couldn't believe it. She got up to the top. This was a couple of two and a half hours and she could have done it again. Like she was just wiggling, loving it. And just, you know, I was exhausted. But if I had matched this gentleman with that dog, it would have went terribly because she would have been bouncing around his apartment looking for stuff to do, throwing toys around. You know, trying to, uh, try to find the cats. <laughs> <See>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, you probably have to th- think about that too. Like, if someone has animals already, if they have a, a cat or a, or you know any other animal in the house, um, like, can they still be matched with the guy dog, or do they have to get? I don't. Yes. They have to get rid of their cats. Like, I, you know, like I don't know how that works, or if part of the training for the dogs is being in an environment with you know other animals. Yeah, we um we do try and expose like a big part of it is socializing the puppies when they're young and impressionable, you know? Um, so we try and socialize them with as many animals and as many situations as we can. Uh, at the canine campus where we train our dogs, we also have two kennel cats. So all the dogs that are trained there have exposure to cats. Um, and then some of it, we can't always prepare for every situation. Uh, I was working with someone recently who had a uh, pet rabbit you know, and we, we don't have, we don't have a campus rabbit at the training center. So um, I had to do some work, you know, with the dog, just making sure they're comfortable around the rabbit and making sure those interactions are safe. Um, but again, it's something we match for. So if, if I've got a dog that I know has, you know, is a bit more interested in small animals, um, you know, and you can see that just from, you know, walking past squirrels and things like that um so i wouldn't have put a dog that you know i could see a heightened interest in small animals with that person you know we we consider those things when we're matching and we try and we try and prep each dog as much as we can for the individual situation once they are matched so we try and match you know between four and six weeks prior to a training program with the handler so during those four to six weeks where I know who that dog is going to, I'm going to try and prep them for that person's routine and lifestyle and whatever that means, whether it's, you know, rabbits in the house or maybe the person goes on, you know, long trail walks. You know, if that's the case, I'll try and work them in those sort of environments. If it's someone who works in the city a lot and is on trains regularly, I'll try and replicate that sort of lifestyle for the dog in those final weeks of training. So it's sort of customizing the dog for the person yeah i imagine households with kids and stuff too right i mean yeah. some dogs yeah, yeah. the now just to, before we wrap up this story about about the uh the 2800 stair climb um you know i've gone hiking before and i'm terrible at hiking even when i have somebody you know guiding me like my my wife was okay oh you know tree root okay here's a step and then i you know my kids will just kind of run up the run up the trail and I'm kind of, you know, going slow and, and, and whatnot. So when you have somebody, you know, with your help and with a guide dog climbing up 2,800, you know, steps of log two and rock, rock one and, and those things like that's, you know, I mean, it's maybe a dream come true for this person, but I can just only imagine the infusion of self-confidence after that too. It's like, whoa, I just did this. And, you know, 99% of sighted people, are not never going to do something like that because it'd just be too grueling and you know quite honestly you know, difficult even if you you'd see right just the, the uneven terrain and whatnot so i think that you know you accompanied this individual on that that journey is uh, certainly um certainly quite awesome and uh, 
Um, I hope you volunteer to do that for every other person who wants to, <laughs> who wants to go climb the 2,800 steps. Or you look back and I say, well, you know what? Hey, that was a little crazy, but <laughs> it was fun once. So um, Yeah, I would love to do it again. Um, it, it's something I'm looking at getting involved in um, more of the adaptive sports um, and, yeah, trying to, to use some of my skills to help with, with those things because – yeah, you, like you said, like the, the empowerment and the sense of achievement for that young lady was just incredible to, to witness and to be there with her when she did that was, uh, yeah, uh, amazing for me. Great. Listen, great stories. Um, Rob, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's certainly a, a lot of fun. Um, and uh, do you have anything else that you want to say before we wrap it up or any direction you would um you know direction you would direct is a horrible way to say that <laughs> anyway you would direct the audience to you know find out more information uh, anybody who might be interested in getting a guide dog or understanding what that experience is like anything you would uh, suggest to them yeah um there's plenty of information and you can apply on cnib.ca um and for anyone who's interested in in supporting the program um particularly now when you know we do have a huge increase in demand um, you can go to sponsorpuppies.ca um, and through that portal, you can arrange for, you know, one-time donation. Um, there's monthly donations, which are quite a popular option. People can choose to donate a small amount every, every month, which, um, and in turn, you'll, you'll get some updates and contact from us. Um, but it, it's, it's very much needed right now. We don't have any government support. So all the money we, we, um, have comes from donations sponsorships um and it's it's critical because there's a big need uh, for guide dogs in this country right now um and we want to be able to to service as much of that need as we as we can so and sponsorpuppies.ca is pretty much the uh best domain name you could possibly get for <laughs> for people to, to to help with this i mean this is you know I don't know how someone could say no if they went to sponsorpuppies.ca. So uh, anybody who's listening to this, you know, check out sponsorpuppies.ca. And uh, Rob, thanks again for joining me on the show. It's certainly a pleasure. And hopefully we can do this again soon. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.